Okay, thank you uh, for coming again. Sorry for the schedule change this week. Hopefully we'll get back to our Sunday nights, although we're probably going to cancel for uh, one of the weeks of yeshiva break. So just if you're going away, you don't have to zoom in. You can take a week off. Have a little re- relaxing Sunday night. Okay, so last, the last few weeks, we've sort of been uh, negotiating this problem within the Rambam. Namely, that on the one hand, he seems to think that there are two kinds of midrashim. There's some midrashim that convey information that was given at Sinai, and there's other kinds of information that was con- that conveys other kinds of midrashim that convey information that was created after Sinai, right? From the time, really, from the time of Moshe. More specifically, it seems from Yoshua. The exact status of Moshe is a interesting problem, but certainly from the time of Yoshua in the Rambam's vision, the sages of each generation would create new halachos using their, um, their minds, using the yudgimomidos, using other legislative uh, tools that are granted to them by the Torah itself to create law. And that sort of maps onto the category of Durbanan that we have talked about how it's a little more problematic. We're going to get into that more next week um, in the final part of this year, this series of Shurim, I think, uh, before we move on to the other Shurashim. Uh, as opposed to where I've been emphasizing that what's usually called Daraisa, but what I think I've been emphasizing for the Ramam is really um, Sinai law. So I proposed last week that uh, that the blanket statements that uh, the statements that appear in the second Shoresh that appear to be very sweeping, that is, that if something's called Daraisa, it's Daraisa and it's counted, and if something's not called Daraisa, it's Darabanan and not counted. So I proposed last week that those sweeping statements actually have a far, far narrower import within the Rambam. So uh, I, other people have noticed some of these things. That I, I think that I'm certainly one of the um, one of the first people to try and push it as far as I have. Uh, so take it. You could take that or leave it. I would say. And I, I, what I'm going to say, what we're going to talk about the rest for the rest of the of tonight, it doesn't quite depend on the, that second point. That's sort of my narrower reading of the second Shoresh, but it certainly ties in. To this bigger problem for the Rambam, how to that there are certain there are two kinds of midrashim. There are certainly certain midrashim that are from Sinai, and certain midrashim that are not. So the question then becomes, how did the Rambam identify them? Right, that's the obvious question. Right, once we sort of have these two classes of midrashim, then we have to ask ourselves, well, how do we know what's what? How do we know that something is from Sinai, as opposed to something not being from Sinai? So unfortunately, the Rambam doesn't actually tell us directly. He doesn't really sit down and, and pen rules and say, okay, you know, these kind of midrashim, this is evidence from a midrash that these midrashim are from Sinai, and these, uh, and these are not. And he sort of never sits down and, t- and lays out step by step how one would look back at the, the Talmudic and, and re- evidence from Chazal to determine what is what. Right? That's, and that's sort of the very, obviously going to be a very, very pressing question. So, what I'm, so I'm going to propose some um, some more some um, proposals. Some uh, each, I think, in sort of varying degrees of speculative uh, of speculativeness, if that's a word. Uh, speculation. speculation. Thank you. Uh, to varying degrees of speculation as to what the Rambam, uh, how the Rambam might have approached this problem and solved it. We're actually. I'm. I'm going to. I was thinking about this on the way over. I'm actually going to start with source number five. Um, not a statement not from the Rambam, but from his son, 
Um, where I think, at least at the beginning, maybe dealing with some of these, sort of hinting at what one tool that I really want to find within the Rambam, but I haven't actually found him say directly. But I think this might be uh, something of a clue. So this statement actually comes from what is known as the Ma'amar Adrash al-Chazal, a statement about um, Rabbinic Midrashim from Avram ben Rambam, which actually forms part of a much larger work um, known in Hebrew as Sefer Hamasmi Glov Hashem, like the uh, sufficient guide for those who want to worship God, which you know, is pretty convenient. Unfortunately, we don't have it all, so it's insufficient. But, um, but the parts that we have are very interesting. Obviously, it was written in Arabic, uh, like most of the Rambam's writings. Uh, but, and so this actually comes from a, a, medieval Hebrew, a medieval translation of this work. Anyways, in source number five, the, uh, the first sentence reads as follows. So he's talking about Midrashim in general. He says, And don't think that anytime you have a Midrash, don't think that you like these these fools who think that every single time you have a explanation of a of a, a pasuk that that is a received tradition. As it is in the central matters of the Torah and some of the more periphery matters, that's not the case. So we'll get back to this in a sec. We'll get back to the rest of this in a second. But it sounds to me, at least, I'm not. 100% sure of this, as I'm not 100% sure about most of the things that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, I'm certainly not 100% sure about this possible reading, but I think what he might be saying is that, first of all, obviously most Midrashim, or many Midrashim, are not necessarily from, based on Kabbalah, based on received tradition. The way, as opposed to the way it is when it comes to the fundamental issues, Ikar HaTorah V'Hakalot, and the, and the some, sometimes secondary issues within the Torah. It sounds like what Avraham Rama might be implying is that midrashim that sort of come about uh, when, as it pertains to fundamental issues and important issues within the psukim, so those are going to be more likely to be tradition than not. So obviously a, a good example of that, that is, is are the Ramam's examples that we talked about a couple weeks ago, right? Priyat Hadar, what is the Priyat Hadar, right? That's the etrog, how do we sit in a sukkah, right? How do you fulfill that mitzvah? So I always thought, or I thought for a while at least, that... Uh, that it could be that there's certain those kind of guiding mitzvah halachos are included within the midrashim that are from Sinai. The problem is, as we'll see in a little bit in the second set of sources, is that when it comes to the positive commandments, right? Like, how do we know that avoda is tefillah, right? Otota avodu, right? You should worship God means to pray to God. How do we know that that is a a, a Sinai drasha? Versus not. Well, so the Raman tells us, uh, tells us that it is in the Sefer Mitzvot, but there's no real like, practical ramifications. Unlike in the Lotases, right, where you impose punishments for violation, which is going to be a, a, a very clear indication, when it comes to the Mitzvot Ase, you don't necessarily have the same kind of fallback te- to test whether or not it's a drasha from Sinai. So that's a good question. I think, it's a, I think it means like the less significant areas of the Torah. Is it, again, this is, a, this is a translation from the original Arabic. I, I have to go back and check what it says there in the original. Because um, this piece actually does survive in translation, in the in original, I think. But I think that's what he means. He thinks that like, this, the mitzvot that are less important, but still mitzvot, as opposed to even less fundamental issues, which, which he talks about in the rest of the piece. We'll go back to that in a second. It's a good question. Are we talking about midrashay halacha or just midrashay? Ah, good. No, it could be either one. We'll get, both, both will come up, but mostly halachic. Issues, yes, mostly halachic questions, but they will. But the Avraham Rama actually in the rest of his piece will talk about a 
non-halakhic issue. But we'll get back to that in a second. Okay, so the first, so, the, so that's my first sort of proposition, and I can't prove or disprove it, but I think that Avram Aram might be hinting at it, which is that on the, the first piece of evidence might be that certain midrashim that guide fundamental issues of halakhic practice are going to be more likely than not from Sinai. Okay, fine. The next kind of issue that comes up a lot for, for the Rambam, then we remember what it is, what sort of evidence the Rambam would use, to test whether or not some matter is a tradition or not. Like, what does the Rambam say about tradition? It's always unanimous, right? There's never been any debate about, about received tradition, which implies that anytime you have a debate, that it's more likely than not to not be a tradition. At least we saw already, we suggested already previously that sometimes people may be arguing about the hint in the Torah to, to the specific tradition and not the content of the tradition. But by and large, when you have a debate, that's generally evidence for the Rambam that the, that the matter at hand is not a received tradition. Okay. Sorry? He did not live in our world. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Our world is much more uh, hotly debated issues, right, that are definitely, certainly not traditions. Okay, so, that's, so that seems to be what the Rambam holds in general, right? And I think the best way to illustrate this point or to think about this, is actually places where the Rambam has to go out of his way to prove this in places that wouldn't actually come up. Right? Sometimes I think people will say, well, maybe the Rambam didn't think that was so serious, or there's all this evidence, some of the acronym point out to the Rambam, oh, well, there's all these machlokas about the, in the Gemaras, about halacha and Moshe Messini laws. So how can it be the Rambam really thought that debate means there's no tradition? So I don't know how to answer all those questions, but I do know that the Rambam is very, very adamant about his position. And you can see this in places where he goes against what seems to be the, the, the simple meaning of a text. Right? So that, the, the best example that I found, actually, not, not me originally, but that I've, I've seen in the literature cited, is the following. Out of Mishnah in Adios, at the end of, at the end of Mesech and Adios. There's actually, the, the Mishnah begins, the first source number one, Amar Rabbi Yeshua, Mekubal Ani Mirabba Yochanan Ben Zakkai. So I have a tradition from Yochanan and Zakkai. Shishami Mirabba, Rabbi Mirabba, Halacha Lamoshe Messinai. Right, so I have this great tradition of very uh, noble stature. She'ein Eliyahu ba Right, Eliyahu doesn't come to render certain things tahor tame or push people away or bring them closer. Rather, Rather, he just does battle with certain classes of individuals who have gained position or lost position through force. Okay, so that's one position in the Mishnah. But then the Mishnah continues. Rabbi, Rabbi Huda says, no. Eliyahu's not doing that. Rabbi Huda Omer, Lekarev avalo l'rachek. Eliyahu's not going to bring people close. Uh, he's going to bring people close, but he's not going to push other people away. The exact meaning of these phrases is not so crucial right now. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Rabbi Shimon says that he's going to make peace. He's going to make sure there's no machlokas. Right? Very pressing issue in our day. He's not going to push people away, bring people closer. Rather, right? Rather, Eliyahu is going to bring peace to the world. Right? Eliyahu is going to bring peace. So, what's the problem for the Rambam? Should be obvious, right? There's a machlokas, right? The Rambam thinks that there's no, never been any debate about a tradition. Lo and behold, here we have a pretty clear case. 
of a debate about a tradition. What does the Ramam do? The Ramam actually goes out of his way to reread this text in two separate places. The first is in the Parish of Mishnah. So what does he say? What's going on? How can, this, how can it possibly be there's a debate about this so-called halacha Moshe Messinai? Is it really halacha Moshe Messinai? How can you have a debate? So the Ramam writes, it's source number two. The actual wording wasn't heard from Moshe. The general principle was heard from, from Moshe. Etc., etc. Right? That Eliyahu is going to come, skip to the end of the second line. Right, that, that individual, Eliyahu, before the Messiah comes, he's going to take away bad things. Eliyahu is going to you know, improve the world on certain matters. And there's no, no one disagrees with this. But what's going on here in this Mishnah? The rather, Chazal is arguing about what the content of this cure, the solution that, that Eliyahu is going to offer, meaning the Ramam has taken what apparently is a tradition about, it seems to be a debate about tradition, saying, no, they're not actually arguing about the tradition. Rather, that they received was a general te- idea from Moshe that Eliyahu is going to come and make things better, and they're arguing about what that's going to be. Right? That's clearly absent from the text of the Mishnah. Right? It's not what the mission seems to be saying, but it shows you, I think, how far the Rambam is willing to go to emphasize this point. In fact, in general, I would say, the Rambam seems to think that most Machlokas come about because there's ambiguity in text. Right? He's, he, in the Migeret um, Teiman, he actually points to this uh, issue in Yana Dioma, right, that the, um, the question is, well, so we had a, they had a church in, in, in Mitzrayim that the Jews would be in Egypt for a certain amount of time, 420, 420 years, right? That was a tradition that they had. And then there was a debate within the Jews in Mitzrayim when that clock started. Right? So what they had was an ambiguous tradition, and then a debate arose about that. So that's how the Ramam applies that to this very same text here. We have a, a tradition that's ambiguous, and then debate comes about. So the Mishnah is not actually arguing about the Allah Moshe Messinai, but a, the ambiguity within the tradition. If you look in the... Um, in Hilchot Malachim, at the very, very, very end of the Mishnah Torah, he says the same idea. Seems from the prophets. Right, first is going to be a navi, and then there's going to be a debate, uh, argue, uh, war between Gog and Magog. But but some people think that Eliyahu is going to come before this, right? Even before this whole war, war, war breaks out. And then he writes, this is a very crucial line, all these matters, everything about the end of days, no one's going to know how it's going to be until it's going to be. Why? Even the prophets didn't know these things. Were, they were unclear to them. Based on the, re- the reading of the verses, meaning these ambiguous texts, here we see again, the Ramam having, driving home this idea, the debate comes out between 
in cases when there is no tradition. And when you have ambiguous text, that's going to lead to debate. There's no tradition. Okay, that's clear. This comes up in other in more halakhic contexts as well, the same idea, right? We've been talking about, I've been driving home pretty hard, this example of um, this lotase of imposing death penalty on Shabbos. It's actually in this very text, um, and I'm not really sure what the connection between, I was thinking about it a lot, I'm not really sure how to, um, why this is connected, why the Ram has to bring it up. But anyways, in the second, in, in, in this very, not very mitzvah, in source number four, the second paragraph here, he writes, Lashon Michilta, the Michilta says, Lo tivaru esh, don't light a fire on Shabbos, Sreifa beklal haita, viyatsta lulamed, right? Why is Sreifa mentioned? Why is it identified? Identified. Ma Sreifa miyuchedet shi achad mimitot beitin, ve'eno dokha et Shabbat. af kol shar mitot beitin, lo yitku et Shabbat, right? Just a Sreifa, you can't impose Sreifa on Shabbos, so too you can't impose any other capital punishment on Shabbos. And then the Ramam continues. And this should be familiar for anyone who did Dafyomi in Mesechat Shabbos or Sanhedrin. Behine. Amro Havara Lilavyatsa, right? Wait a second, sorry, step, step, one second. Let's take a step back. There actually is a very there is a debate about this Pasuk. There is a debate about why the why the Torah mentions Srefa on Shabbos as a burning burning things on, on a fire on Shabbos, right? There's a debate in Rabbi Yosin the Khachamim. Is that telling us that burning things on Shabbos is just a lav? and only punished by Makos and not full violation of Shabbos insofar as it receives capital punishment? Or is it telling us that you're chayah for each malacha that you do on your own? So the Ramam actually weighs in on this debate, which is totally out of character. He says, But the position that kindling fire on Shabbos is only a lotase, not a, not a punishment, that in, a, a crime that incurs capital punishment, so in this translation, the, Ibn, the standard translation, it says, Ein ze halacha. This is not the halacha. Kapach translates it, Velonit kayem. This view is not held up. I'm, I think that both of them are probably under-reading this. It, it's saying that this, the Ramam says this position is, is incorrect, which is totally out of character. If you think all debate is sort of post-facto, right, just reading through ambiguous verses, oh, why does the Torah mention burning a fire on Shabbos specifically? Oh, because whatever reason you want to give, right, that, that debate. So then it will be after the fact. But the Ramam is not willing to countenance this reading. Ad-Kidekach, so far, so, so, go so far to say this, this view that kindling fires on Shabbos is not, is, is only a lotase. He says that's totally out of the halakhic system, which he very, very, very rarely said, very rarely said, ever says. And you see this, in, in fact, even the same idea. You asked this question about the non-halakhic cases. Right? So if you look in, um, the, the, in, in the last sentence in source number five, but Avram and Aram, I'm the same idea. He says, he says, I don't Sorry, I have no doubt. What's his midrash? Anyone know? We have the beginning of the of Parshish Yitro, Yitro heard. So what's the debate? What do you hear? Right? What are the options? Kriyas Yamsuf, Sinai, Hulei, right? The Midrashim Rashi already weighs in there. Right? So the question then in that case is, well, it's an ambiguous case. What did Yitro hear? Right? So for the Rambam, I think it's pretty obvious what he would make of this. Right? 
This, so Avram and Ram says explicitly, he spells it at the last, cl- the very end of the line. Right? This case, because we have a debate about an ambiguous text, about what you get show heard, so there's no, no one would ever say this is a tradition. Rather, this is just Chazal interpreting the Psukim based on what they think. So we see now within the Ramam, within the Ramam and, and his son, a very staunch position that debate is evidence of a lack of tradition. And the Ramam has to go so far as to reread cases that seem to really go against this idea to indicate that, no, those are not debates about tradition, they're debates about something else, some ambiguous text, or, or they're pro- problematic for some other reason. So that's the first, the first major way to think about it. The first piece of evidence I think the Rambam uses for identifying, identifying Midrashim that are from Sinai or not. Okay, the second kind of evidence I think has to do with an Onesh. And this may be um, obvious that whenever you have a punishment, you're dealing with a biblical prohibition. But I don't think actually it's quite as spelled out as we would like it to be within the Rambam. We have to sort of infer this from various cases. So, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the third source, which we'll eventually reach, uh, maybe six or seven weeks into the weekly shear on the Shorashim, the Ramam deals with this case of someone who steals one of the kalim from the Mikdash. So Chazal, or from the Mishkan, I guess, in this case. Chazal, um, read, the, read, the, read this pasuk. They, they say, Afalpi she'amru, remez l'gonevet ha'kisva lo yavoli wrote. There's this a hint to this prohibition of stealing this, this kli from this pasuk. So it says it's a remez. So how do I know if this is a real midrash or not? So the Ramam says, how do I know that this prohibition is not from Sinai? Yesh dai sipuk bi'amram, remez, remez. So first of all, it says remez, which tells you that it, for the Ramam, that's insufficient evidence. Furthermore, shepashte dekara enokei, in the pshat, is not dealing with this case of someone who lawyer Valley wrote is dealing with a case of someone is, who um, steals. It's, it's going into review things, not stealing, right? That's another midrash that's imposed onto the text according to the Rambam. And then the key line: "V'eino gam michlal misa Also, whenever it, when Chazal lists the people who get punished by misa, they don't list the case of someone who steals the kli from the mikdash. So the Rambam is giving us a few kinds of evidence to show you that this halacha is not really a din daraisa or a din from Sinai. One is the word remez. Two is that it's pshat, is not supported by pshat. And three, very importantly, for my purposes, is this idea that it lacks a misa punishment, right? Which means that if it did have a, only punishment by capital crime, then it would be sufficient to indicate that we are dealing with a Sinai Midrash. Okay, and I think this actually might be the, the way the Raman deals with other cases as well. So we're... Yeah? That is subject to No, not... not um, no, but I think you could say that this is a different case because it's the, it has to do with the Mikdash or something like that. You could say it's a Me'ila. There's other ways to suggest that, in theory, you, you could think that maybe there's a Misa punishment involved. Didn't we talk about it earlier about the case of the Kohen? Also, it was one of those, I'm trying to remember the exact case. Uh, there was no Mita punishment. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to some of those cases in a second. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Next week, um, we're actually going to focus on this source in much more in depth. 
But there's actually, but we talked about it a little last week also, and next week when we, find, when we round out these series of Shirin, we'll go back to it again. But there's also this famous letter that Ramam wrote to Pinchas Adayin, which I use as evidence to say that there were three or four, um, the, the second chapter was only talking about three or four things. But further on in that very letter, the Ramam is asked about this question of performing marriages through money. How do I know that they are only, what does it mean that they're divrei sofrim? But before that, the Rambam actually says that if one ex- gives a, con- contracts a, a marriage through a star, right, then the the, the wedding the, the marriage has happened. Okay. So how do I know that that, which also is not in the Torah, is Doraisa, whereas using money is only different sovereign. So the Rambam explains. So he, the source number seven. Since they're both using logic, I would have thought that Kesef and Shtar are both Midivrehem, that is rabbinic. Except for the fact, in the case of this 12 and a half year old girl, the following case, 12 to 12 and a half year old girl, that we say the following, Nara Murasa Beskila, how can you have a case of a Nara Murasa, this um, very narrow window of, a, of, a, uh, of, of female development, that, she, that if she were to cheat on her husband, that she would be punished by capital crime? So th- th- he says, what does the Gemara say? I mean, the Amar Kra, Nara Betula Murasa, the Torah refers to this, Murasa mina Torah below Bia. Uvama, the Gemara says, well, the, this, from this Pasuk, it implies that you can have a case of a betrothed maiden between 12 and 12 and a half without re- physical relationship. Nevertheless, the, wed- the marriage is sufficient to impose punishment. Take a lot of steps there. Basically, we have a case of someone who's married who did not have intercourse, and therefore, but nevertheless, they're still married. Then the Gemara, the Gemara debates, and the whole argument in the Gemara. You have a case of the, the, this case of the imposing a capital punishment happens when you have kiddushin that happens by star. Meaning, the evidence of the biblical status of this marriage is brought about through the very fact that she incurs punishment. Okay, which is which, for, again, for the Raman, we have evidence that punishment would take something that would be ambiguous, or perhaps, I would think, is in the world of Durabanans, and push it to Doraisas. Right? And we talked, and there's all sorts of other evidence. From this, I, we can't go through all the cases now. Um, let's see if we can do, should we do one more? Let's do one quickly more, right? That what happens when a, um, in source number eight, a Kohen who does a voda with insufficient big day kahuna, right? He's only wearing a few of the clothes, not all of them. The Kohanim are coming up a lot in the Shurim and, and more tonight. So what happens with that case? So the Raman list says it, that person incur, incurs mita bide shamayim. And on the second line, what's the evidence? What, some of the evidence for this is a chain manu ota begamar sanhedrin bechlal nechuyve misa bide shamayim. Oh, this is further evidence that how do we know that this Kohen receives, it, this din is Doraisa? From the fact that incurs capital punishment. And we turn over the page. The Lev Sameach makes this very clear, right? 
this I was very happy to find, tucked away in, in voluminous comments. He says, Davar shebiru hamatikim. Whenever the, the transmitters of the tradition say, Shazat isur isuro daraisa, uvema biruhu. How do we know that it, something is isur daraisa? Right, that you have this, this biblical punishment, right? How do we know a certain kind of tuma is biblical? From the very fact that you can get punished on a biblical kind of imposed punishment. Why? Because if it wasn't for the fact they had this tradition, he writes, then we wouldn't have said that it is a biblical crime. Right? So here too we have evidence that for the Rambam that we have one way to, a second way to identify traditions is the imposition of a capital crime. Okay. Now let's do, in the few minutes we have left, one other piece of evidence that I think for the Rambam, and this is a little bit more speculative, but uh, so I've been open just to feedback particularly here. But a final piece of evidence I think for the Rambam as to how you identify Sinai Midrashim is whether or not the Midrash actually uses the Midot. What do I mean by that? That I think that for the Rambam and the Sefer Mitzvot, if a Midrash is identified by one of the Yurgim Midot, the default is that it is after Sinai. And therefore, any time when the Rambam needs, identifies a Midrash that, is a, that by, one, by way of one of the, that's learned out from one of the Midos, he needs to add on further information to say, no, no, don't think this is Durabanan, this is actually from Sinai. Right? We actually saw some of the evidence from this last week. We talked about two cases of Gzeir Shah, but there's very few cases in the, in the Sefer Mitzvot. So this is why I'm a little less certain about it. But we talked about um, two cases in the, in the Sefer Mitzvot when he says, oh, this is Gzeir Shava, but don't think it's just Gzeir Shava. It's also from Sinai, right? We said, oh, don't think this, this is a tradition from Sinai about the prohibition of father-daughter incest. Don't think this is only Rabbanan. Rather, it's a tradition. You would think that because of the Gzeir Shava. Rather, it's a tradition. Or don't think that the uncircumcised Kohen eating truma is only Durabanan because it's a Gzeir Shava. Rather, we have further evidence that it is a, a tradition from Sinai. Which for me, I think, is indicating already that he's sort of uncertain about what to do with laws derived from the Midot. But it may be, and this is even more speculative, it may be that this is not the position the Rambam takes in the Parish of Mishnah. And again, we don't have direct evidence but I think there are enough cases that point in this direction that in the Parish of Mishnah, it seems like the laws from the Midot are by default from Sinai, as opposed to in the Sefer Mitzvot, where if you want to prove to me that a law that's learned from the Midot is from Sinai, I need further evidence other than just the Midot themselves. Sorry? So Sinai Doraisa, I think, for the Rambam is sort of one category. Yeah. But, but then he lies, he lies for, he gives examples in the Parish of Mishnah, but changing of different generations of Chazal over Right, right. So, the, but it, yes. So it's not. So, so that's what part of the, part of the problem here that there are there. Is, so there are, Eisenman is pointing out that in the beginning, of the, in the introduction of the Parish of Mishnah, the Rambam does say that they use the meat out after the fact. It's true, but whenever the Rambam sort of identifies a law that from the meat out, it seems to be that by default that would be a biblical law in in the in the Parish of Mishnah and. Yeah, biblical, but not from Sinai. Unclear. Unclear. So it's possible, again, the the Ramban's position is that the Midot, sort of reading the Torah by way of the Midot, produces biblical law. The question is, is that the Ramban's position? Or at any time, is that the Ramban's position? I'm not sure, but I I wouldn't think so. 
Um, although, except for the fact for the following cases that we're going to see where it seems like the Midot are, are upholding biblical law. So these cases are really scattered around the Parish of Mishnah, and I've just quoted a few of them, um, a few of them here. So one is, um, is it source number 13, the Parish of Mishnah in Kalim, of all places. The Ramam tells us that, how do we know, what, what about all these laws that have to do with too much Kalim, right? The impurity of vessels. Of vessels. Right? The problem is, the Rambam says, at the end of the first line of source number 13, some of them are from Mikra that have to do with Tumas Mace, and some of them are Mikra that have to do with Tumas Sheretz. Right? But nevertheless, we learn the cases from Tumas Mace to the cases about Tumas Sheretz using the Midot, which seems to imply that the Midot are going to produce biblical law. Or again, when we have, um, when he says, uh, he has a similar case in the Parish of Mishnah in, Zot, in, in Zavim, which we're not going to go through in great detail because it's pretty technical. But again, he says, well, how, they, they, they derived a certain law as it pertains to a impure vessel that relates to a Zav using the Midon. And that law seems to be very clearly a biblical prohibition or to take an example that has come up very recently in Dafiomi, right? Um, if everyone is caught up, as they should be, the uh, Mishnah in Megillah discusses this case of what, how do you what size court do you need to evaluate whether or not a uh, to evaluate the price of someone who's dedicated their, their value of, the, of a human life to the Mikdash, right? So the Mishnah tells us that you need nine people, nine people plus a Kohen. Okay, so this we'll actually read inside because it's not so complicated. Resource number 15. Nine, nine Yisraelim and a Kohen on, the, on this basin. This is an optional, not a, a law that you need to follow. Even if the, all, meaning the, nine plus one, you don't need actually nine Yisraelim, rather up to nine Yisraelim. Because of Lefisha Nemar Parshat Erchin, we have a tradition that the Kohen, one Kohen is enough. Right, and here we have you, by way of the Midot, we reduce this number from 10 to 1. And that again, tell, and, and this is a case here too of the Midot containing a tradition almost by default. Right? Now, there are other cases where the Rambam uses some of the Midot to describe debates, right? And, for example, in, the, in source number 16, we have a debate between Rabbi Yekiva and Rabbi Shmuel about using the Midot, which, seem, which may sort of provide a little bit of a clue here that when it comes to certain cases of the Midot containing where there's no debate, it could be that, that those two ideas link up, that we have, when you have the Midot plus no debate, then you have a tradition in the Parish of Mishnah. But when you have a Midot with debate, you, may not, you don't necessarily have a tradition at, at stake, which is, I think, a little bit different than the cases that we have in the Sefer Mitzvot, where every time you have the Midot, we need further evidence to demonstrate that, the, that what we're dealing with here is a tradition and not by, even by assumption. Now, let's talk about one last case where I think we can see, perhaps, and I just saw this actually last night as I was, as I was preparing this year, uh, I think that might, maybe we could, you can even see this change in the Parish of Mishnah to the Sefer Mitzvot uh, within this following case. So how do we know that a Kohen cannot 
you know, scratch, scratch his head or put a mark on his body for a, for, a, for a dead person. How do you know this? It's not, is it in the Torah? Not really. So the Torah says that a Yisrael cannot make a marking for a dead body, but a Kohen cannot make any marking. So how do you know that a Kohen gets punished for making a uh, marking for a dead body? Right? We have, we have one Pasuk about Yisrael that is general, and one Pasuk about a Kohen that applies, the Yisrael applies to the dead, the dead body, and the, the Kohen doesn't, doesn't mention a, a, a deceased member of the family, a deceased person which one might mourn by scarring themselves and their body. Right, so then we have sort of ambiguity, a problem here. So how did Chazal get out of this problem? Well, he, and the Ramam says this in the, in the parish of Mishnah and Makos. We have Xerashava from the Kohen to the Israel, the Israel to the Kohen, and every, every rule that applies to the Israel applies to the Kohen, and everyone goes unhappy. Right? We have Xerashava teaching us this rule that is not necessarily explicit in the Torah. But when, actually, when, but when the Ramam presents this very case in the Sefer Mitzvot, he does something very different. And sort of by implication, it might be showing us that Xerashava, he's moving away from this Xerashava idea as it pertains to this rule, and maybe perhaps has ramifications more broadly as to how he, he deals with the Midos, right? In the Parish Mishnah, he says this, this ambiguity about Kohen is derived from Xerashava, and therefore, and it would be, it would seem that it's a Doraisa rule. But when he presents the, this, this halacha and the Sefer Mitzvah, he ignores the Xerashava altogether, and he has a different approach. Right, he says, right? um, We're prohibited from uh, marking our heads, like scr- scratching them or something like that, uh, on, for, for deceased people as the fools do. Fine. Right, that's the Pasuk. But then, this, how, did you, how did you explain the Kohen? Not using a Gezerah Shava, but this pasuk is repeated by a, this. This prohibition is repeated by a kohen, even though not all of the rules by a kohen are mentioned by Israel. How, how do we deal with it? hadin. When the Torah talks about the kohen halacha, it's just filling in the rest of the picture from the Israel halacha. We've moved on from this idea that there's a shava to a different sort of approach to explain this, same very, this very same halacha. So I think it's possible here, and this, again, this whole part of the year is somewhat speculative, but it's possible that we've moved from a position in the parish of Mishnah where midot in general can be assumed with, unless there's a debate about it, we can assume that the law identified by the midot is received tradition, to a position where the midot need further evidence and therefore we need to justify those laws using other tools. In which case, then what we have in, in perhaps, we certainly have three different approaches, three different kinds of evidence that Ramam used. One, the presence of debate. And we saw that he, when there's debate, he's really adamant that there's no tradition. He's even willing to reread text otherwise. Two is that when you have a capital crime or some other crime, and this is why, again, why Lota says are much clearer and it's much easier to identify. Whenever you have a capital crime, you have a biblical prohibition or other biblical punishments. And finally, I've suggested that there might be a sort of shift in the Ramam's writings where in the, in the Parish of Mishnah, he seems to think that any time you have the Midot, by default, we're sort of more or less dealing with a received tradition. But when it comes to the, parish, the Sefer, the Sefer Mitzvot, written later, he thinks that if you have the Midot, you need further evidence 
by which one can show that we have a received tradition. Therefore, he's, he needs to go further and argue in each case why we would perhaps have a received tradition. So with that, we'll close. Well, next week we'll talk about, I'm going to brave Divrei Sofrim, uh, and then hopefully we will um, move on from the, uh, from the shirim as, as they relate to the second shore. So thank you very much. Go ahead. Go ahead.